Hi, Joe Lysett here in Bridge End, and my favourite agricultural podcast is the Pub Yields podcast with Jacob and Di. All the other agricultural podcasts are a load of piss and shit. They're a load of piss and shit. And welcome to the Pub Yields podcast with me, David Rees. Me, Jacob Anthony. And our guest this week, Ronald Angus. How are you, mate? Not too bad, boys. All the better for uh, having the company. You two gents, I'm sure. Oh, he's a charmer. He's a charmer. Yeah, he's a bit, very smooth, proper <laughs> Scotsman. Now. Very smooth. Well, with a name like Ronald Angus, like I wouldn't expect you to be anything else other than Scottish. A bit of a giveaway, really, isn't it? But, yeah. <laughs> And a farmer or that. <laughs> so you but, say Scotland, you say Scotland for those uh, uninitiated. Whereabouts exactly? Um, so I come from the county of Caithness, which is the northernmost county in the British mainland. So we, by rough geometry, uh, are approximately closer to the Arctic Circle than we are to London. So wow. we're right at the very top, and I sit about uh, probably about four or five miles away from John O'Groats, which is the famous tourist destination that's not really up to much. But um, yeah, we, we're uh, in that part of the world, and uh, yeah, it's a nice place, maybe a little bit on the challenging side regarding the farming, but um, yeah, it's uh, there are definitely a lot worse places to be in the world, put it like that. <clears throat> Plenty of sun then. <laughs> yeah, probably lacking a little bit in that department. But um, yeah, certainly climate change is coming and they tell us the more north you are, the better off you'll be. So maybe one day, uh, die, maybe one day. <laughs> yeah. I was just picking up on the fact that you said you're closer to the Arctic Circle than you are London. Well, you're probably safer getting chased by a polar bear than going for a jog in East London anyway, aren't you? So that's <laughs> not look at, isn't it? So would would you be far from Michael Rich then, or have I got my geography all wrong there, Jake? Um, I wouldn't be far as the crow flies. I mean, uh, if, if I remember correctly, he's in Aberdeenshire, so that's probably about, oh, it would only be 70 or 80 miles as a yeah. crow flies, but as a car journey, that would be probably about four, four and a half hours uh, yeah. to get to him because you've got to go down the way, sort of in a south uh westerly direction and then cut across staying again in an easterly direction to get to him so uh, if somebody would build a nice bridge just right across uh, to Aberdeen it'd be great but unfortunately uh, for us every car journey if you want to go somewhere you've basically got to go to Inverness first if you're heading south so you've got kind of a two two and a half hour car journey before your your um, your voyage really begins because if you're heading to Perth or or Edinburgh or whatever, you've got to get to Inverness first. So, yeah, we're, we're a little bit in the remote side, but um, it's uh, it's got its benefits, put it like that. 
Yeah. yeah. Hey, Inverness, what a place. This the only place I've actually been outside of Edinburgh in Scotland properly. And well, what a night in John O'Fox or whatever it's called. I thoroughly enjoyed myself in there. Oh, uh, John O'Fox is, I, uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, the nightlife in Inverness is okay, but I find Inverness is quite spread out. So there's not really like one place where it's all, it's kind of all happening type of thing. So uh, yeah, it's a good enough night out, certainly. And in terms of nightlife, actually, boys, uh, Cardiff, when I was down, I'd, n- I'd never been to Cardiff before until uh, I had to go to, obviously, and uh, go to the Nuffield Conference. And uh, here, 10 out of 10, I've been many as a place on a random Thursday night. Uh, and Tiger Tiger in Cardiff, uh, right enough, there wasn't exactly many people in it, but certainly it was uh, it, it was open and th- there was stuff going on. Because even in London, you can be there and there's very little open at that. You know, you think being a big city, you go there and, oh, aye, it'll be uh, just, you know, casinos and uh, pubs and clubs. But very often, a lot of these places, once midnight comes, that's it. The job's knackered. Yeah. Hey, the, th- the thing is with Cardiff and South Wales, since Margaret Thatcher closed the mines, everyone sleeps during the day and parties during the night. Suddenly <laughs> <laughs> well, the nights are all on the dole now, so it's ideal. That's why Cardiff's always so... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you, I remember that night, Jake. Me and you, were, me and you were right in the mix of thick of it in um, uh, what's it called, the student place. Live lounge. Live, live lounge. lounge. We, we went to live lounge that night, Ronald, and we ended up like it was a student night. And you know, I can't grow any facial hair, so I don't usually feel old. Oh my god, I felt <laughs> old that that night. Well, I remember uh, there was some place they were queuing outside the door, and we couldn't get in. That would be uh, live lounge. Aye, so aye, aye, because they were playing live music. Aye, of course, yeah. yeah. So like we were standing there at the back with Q, thinking we could pull a flywheel and get into this place, and uh, under no circumstances were they letting us in there. So we went up the road then and ended up in this Tiger Tiger place, and we basically <laughs> had the whole place to ourselves. So it was nearly like a private function. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tiger Tiger is the place to be. Match day in Cardiff is where the players go after the game usually. So it's a uh, it's a good place to go. The WIE. Usually book out a booth or two, don't they die? Yeah, well, it's Tiger Tiger. If you watch Gavin and Stacey, when they go go out in Cardiff, it's Tiger Tiger they go to. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. TV trivia. Yeah. yeah. You, you say from um, up that part of Scotland, is there a wick up that way as well? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So there's two main towns in the county of Caithness. Uh, they're probably sort of between ten and 15,000 the population each. And uh, Wick is on the east side and Thurzo's on the west side. Um, they're both uh, sort of traditional farming and fishing towns. Um, Wick had a lot going on. Uh, it was like the herring capital for Europe uh, in the 19th century. But since then, it's kind of gone into decline a little bit. But um, yeah, that's, that's, that geography is right. Um, they've both, a lot of places in Caithness have, have Viking names because. The Vikings came down from the north, and uh, Caithness was kind of the gateway to Scotland for them. So it's it's interesting you say about um, uh, the Viking influence on the um, the Scottish coast. I'm going to bore everyone now, but I, I think this is a really interesting fact. So bore people die. Loads of well, loads of Welsh coastal towns are called Aber something. So you got Aberavon, Aberavon, Aberystwyth, you know, all these. Because in Welsh, Aber means mouth of the river. So it's, you know, the estuary of the river. 
And if you, there's loads of Scottish coastal towns called Aber something, Aberdeen, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's because the, the Welsh language and the very early, early Pictish language were incredibly similar. And they, they basically derived from the same language. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Here's that. Um, I just remember, I haven't asked you the most, uh, well, the, about the only structural question we have each podcast. What are you drinking tonight, Ronald? Um, I've gone proper Nuffield tonight because we are on uh, Thatcher's Hayes. Martin yeah. Thatcher, of course, being a 2005 Nuffield scholar and very good cider it is. Seeing as we're in the last throws of summer, we might as well have a cider. Um, a lot of people think that Bulmers and Magners is great stuff, but no really, boys. You need to be trying this. This is the real deal right here. Absolutely good man die. <laughs> um, I'm on my cider on Doomba. Doombar. Yeah. Seems popular at stuff anywhere you go in, they've got it on tap. I don't know how good it is, but certainly uh, it, it's a popular one anyway. We, we'll get into Nuffield and we'll get into our experience with Nuffield as well, Jake. But do you want to just take us back? Was from a very early age, was farming on the uh, was farming the on the precipice or have you what is your journey in agriculture? That'd be a better way of putting it. Yeah, well, um, obviously, I, I grew up at home uh, with our farm at home is a mixed enterprise farm. So we've got beef, sheep, cereals, and uh, some land that's in forestry as well. So I've always grown up around the farm. Uh, however, I was kind of discouraged away from farming by my mother and father um, because in the 90s, when I was growing up, it was quite a bad time for farming because uh, obviously you had the foot and mouth and um, BAC and the like, and there was a bit of uncertainty about what the what this the future was going to be in that sector. So I was encouraged to try and do something else, and I always had a passion when I was quite young for cars. I still quite like cars, and I always wanted to be a designer for cars, and I would draw cars when uh, when I was in school. Uh, really exotic, you know, fast stuff. And I thought one day I'm going to design that. And uh, when I eventually went to high school and managed, I got engineering subjects in school and I left uh, school to start a mechanical engineering apprenticeship with Rolls-Royce. But unfortunately, I had fuck all to do with cars. It was working in nuclear submarines. Oh. So yeah. <laughs> I kind of got close, but no cigar on that one. But yeah, it was an interesting uh period where I did an apprenticeship in mechanical engineering uh, locally working for Rolls-Royce and I did that and then uh, I went on to be uh, a nuclear reactor plant operator uh, because we have up here it's now decommissioned but it's a basically a nuclear prototype of the type of reactor that's used in the Royal Navy's uh, submarine flotilla so basically they have a the arse end of a submarine on dry land that they test sea trials. They basically try, it's like, you know, when you see uh, in some of these car magazines, you get like the latest BMW, but it's all covered in black tape so you can mask work. It was kind of like the naval equivalent of that. They, um, they tested this out for a number of years. It was established in the 1960s. It's now been kind of shut down and currently undergoing decommissioning because they, they can do these things now with computer modeling where at that time they had to kind of really actually try it to see 
So I did that for a couple of years. And then one night on a night shift, I just decided, you know what? I think I've gleaned uh, as much out of this uh, number as I as I can. So I think I'm just going to go now. And I, I buggered off and did a nine-month uh, trip to New Zealand to work for various agricultural contractors, just as a bit of a kind of working holiday. Um, so that then... Uh, lasted for nine months and then uh, I came home then laterally at the back of that uh, kind of with a a, a a position waiting for me at home so I'm now uh, about 11 years into my life sentence I guess you could say. I obviously went over to New Zealand and I was working with agricultural contractors over there and there was one or two funny incidents it was it was brilliant <clears throat> so Every day we would go and before we went to the job, we would go and get uh, some lunch, you know, get some bits and pieces for our, uh, for our lunchbox out of this uh, shop. So it was the same performance every day. We all went in and bought whatever we were having, juice, crisps, sandwiches, whatever. So there was this guy that uh, was working with us who maybe wasn't the brightest fellow in the whole wide world and went up to the... The, the cashier to um to pay for whatever we had and when it came to this guy he turned around to cashier and he said oh yeah mate i'll get a 20 pack of cigarettes please so the cashier says fine i'll go and he reaches around and he grabs a brand of cigarettes off the rack at the back now these cigarettes have a health warning on them and this pack of cigarettes said warning Smoking cigarettes may reduce your fitness. Okay, picture a pair of lungs on an operating table in the front of it. So this guy picks up this pack of cigarettes and has a study of it for a second or two. And he goes, yeah, sweet as mate. Gives the guy the money, out the shop we go. So that's fine. So then next day, same performance. We all pile in. We all buy much about the same stuff. He comes up to his turn to go to the cashier. Same thing. Yeah, mate. I'll get a 20-pack of cigarettes, so that's fine. Cashier goes to the same shelf, he pulls out the same brand of cigarettes, but this time it's got a picture on the front of the packet of fags of a coffin, and it says, warning, smoking cigarettes may cause premature death. And he looks at this pack of cigarettes staring at it, and the queue's getting a bit anxious here, and he just says, hands them over to the cashier and goes, nah, don't want them. And the cashier, he's just astounded. He says, you don't want them? Nah, don't want them. And as the cashier turns around to put the cigarettes back on the, the shelf, the boy taps him on the shoulder and he says, I'll uh, just have those ones that uh, reduce your fitness, bro. <laughs> Another one, right? So when I went over there... Uh, as soon as they knew that you had any mechanical experience whatsoever, you would, like, without fail, would end up landing in a workshop. So I was working for this guy in a workshop who was an amazing guy. Like, the resourcefulness of them was phenomenal. You know, what we take for granted out there, they were, you know, they were just, they would sort of nearly make anything because they had it in their, their mindset. The resourcefulness of them was that they were, you know, we're talking big stuff here. Hydraulic ram, no bother. They would just go through the night, turning it down on a lathe to make it, you know, just unbelievable, right? Mm. So 
this guy that was working for, he said, I need you to phone the local class harvest centre uh, and get me these parts. So he gave me a list of the part number for the forage harvester or bits that he wanted. So I uh, phoned up and I says, right, this is the part number, give me the price. So there was two items that were reasonable money, and I said, right, okay, I'll take them. But the third item, which was a cone for the front of the maze head, which is basically just like a bent bit of steel, they were wanting about $800 for this item. And I said, hmm, I think that's a bit expensive. I better check with my boss here if he's going to buy that or not, because to me it sounds a bit extortionate. So the guy came in, and I says, right, Chris, this uh, cone that we need for this maze head, they're wanting $800. I think uh, that's probably a bit excessive. And he turned around and he looks at me and goes, what? $800? And I says, yeah, $800. He says, give me the phone here. So I took the phone and he says, are you telling me that this part costs $800? And the guy's like, yeah. He says, right, check that part number again to make sure it's right. So, of course, the boy runs it through the computer. Yep. Checks out, it's the right part number, it's $800. So he says, well, tell me this. Does this come with a free packet of cigarettes when I buy it? And, of course, the guy in the part source says, no. Why would it come with a free packet of cigarettes? He says, oh, well, it's just like I usually like to have a smoke after I've been fucked. And I yeah. slammed the phone. Back. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was an absolute cracker. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of about the Kiwis, isn't it? They've just got it. Yeah, uh, they were one hell of a nation. It, like it's yeah. just the ability to do things and get on. Like in this country, if you have a pothole, it's like you know you need a committee to decide if they're going to spend a budget to fix the pothole, which eventually ends up that they fix it in like twelve months' time. Which yeah. by this time it's a fucking crater. In New Zealand, it's like a van and a shovel, and you fix the pothole. You know. It's yeah. Just, yeah, but definitely, boys. It's a, it's 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 a good place to go and visit, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Kiwi Kit Roxanne are proud sponsors of the Pub Yields podcast, bringing New Zealand solutions to British farmers, fencing contractors, and vets. As British weather starts to take a turn for the worst, why don't you try out our Kaiwaka clothing range? Perfect for keeping you dry throughout those winter months. For more information, check out the link below or in the Pubyield social media pages. Yeah, so, well, so do you do you know where Trident is right now? No, oh. I mean we can see that there will be always one. Putin doesn't listen. Putin doesn't listen, so you can tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Since 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 the nineteen sixties or whatever, whenever yeah. it was kind of became a thing, they have maintained a continuous at sea nuclear deterrent so there's always a submarine somewhere that is kind of ready to 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 um pick off if shit gets real put it like that didn't you watch that um sunday night drama die about trident that's what that was about wasn't it no i haven't seen that it's called vigil i think because it's loosely based one of the one of the trident submarines is uh, called uh hms vigilant so I think it's kind of loosely based on that, but yeah, um, it was certainly popular. I wouldn't say it's particularly accurate, but yeah, uh, it was. 
I hope it's not accurate anyway. Oh, fucking hell, there's a lot of snacks going on out the sea, isn't it? <laughs> well, funny. well, we got a guy, we got a guy um, who, as part of the role that I formerly did, we did a basically an intense nuclear training course where they basically tried to teach you as much as they can about nuclear physics and about uh, sort of the, the mechanical or the technical element of the of the uh, reactor plant. Uh, and there's a guy who was a former um, submariner came to give us this course. And uh, he was basically filling us with all the stories of what it's like to be on a submarine. So he says, like, basically, you'll be in, a, in your bed and I can't remember a shift pattern. It's like four hours on and four hours off, or eight hours on, eight hours off, and that's it. Like you're either working or you're basically relaxing or in your bed type of thing. And he was giving us all these stories about like you'll be you'll be sort of waking up to to get um to go and do your shift, and like you'll get the guy that's coming off shift basically clambering over the top of the bunk with his sweaty bollocks rubbing off your face to get into his bunk sort of thing, and all these sort of stories, but. There could be a touch of exaggeration with that, but uh, certainly Guy was, uh, he said it with quite a straight face anyway, so I would have to take uh, a bit of artistic licence that it's probably right enough. So these these nuclear sub boys, how, how long are they out to sea with, uh, out at sea for? As long as it takes, I think. There was a guy who was an ex-submariner that worked in the place that I was working at, uh, and he, he the longest patrol he did, I think, was about uh, nine months. Jesus. Because the thing with a nuclear submarine is it can make its own water, it can make its own electricity, it can make its own oxygen supply. The only limiting factor is food. But even food, if you can rendezvous with another supply ship somewhere, then in theory you can be at sea for basically uh, as long as, I mean, the lifespan of the reactors now, even the you know the 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 bit that drives the thing. I mean, you only have to refuel it uh, once every twenty six years. So uh, you know the thing the thing can be at sea for as long as as long as the crew's able to keep it going. I suppose, but it'll depend on what their mission is. I, I don't really know much about that side of it because I mean I've been to Fastlane and had a look around the submarine, but I've never gone to see in one and certainly uh, I mean our thing was separate Rolls Royce ran this site on behalf of the Ministry of Defence but uh, we um, we didn't uh, like actually some some guys I had worked with had been out on submarines because they maybe needed to do some testing or something so they went out and did that with the Navy but I, I didn't get involved in any of that type of thing so uh, it, uh, I don't really have the naval experience I mean the, the submarine that we had was actually on dry land so <laughs> Bloody hell! God. that's in, that's incredible, mind, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Look at yeah. So, uh, no, farming is pretty easy, is it? <laughs> well, I don't know, boys. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it's maybe not catastrophic as things go wrong. I mean, I'm yet to see a farmer cause a Chernobyl, but some of the farming disasters can be nearly <laughs> can be pretty Maybe. serious sometimes. You say farmers haven't done a Chernobyl. You should see the way the Welsh government act if someone lets them slurry in a river. Fuck it, now they're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> You'd swear Chernobyl's happened. <laughs> you, yeah, here's, here's a question: eh? What's a wetter job, working with submarines or farming in John O'Groats? 
<laughs> well, I, I would say probably actually farming because like you're not actually getting wet as such because like <laughs> fact, this thing we had to pump water up from the sea to it to like for cooling and things. Whereas like uh, you know when you're going out farming, well you're getting exposed to the elements and that's it. So. Yeah, I suppose if you're getting wet on a submarine, it's, it's a bit worrying, really. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. True. Wow. So when you came home then, um, like, was there, was there a position ready for you or did you have to carve your own way? No, um, it just kind of fit in quite well. There was a guy that was working for us, decided to leave because he wanted to do other things and they... Um, my brother had always been at home on the farm and he moved to fill his shoes. And then I just gradually started doing bits and pieces, helping out. And um, eventually I kind of evolved to doing what I'm doing today, which is mainly the horrible side of the business and uh, doing some repairs and things and maintenance and bits and pieces like that, which obviously is going to get sort of delegated on you when you've got a kind of background in mechanical engineering. So, Mm. Yeah, um, it's just kind of evolved. Uh, things have changed over time, and uh, I guess in farming, you just kind of find your own path, don't you? I mean, at the end of the day, you, you make the most of the, the opportunities that are around you, and you, you find your feet, and you find what you're good at, and, you know, you've got to enjoy it as well. This is a, a most important thing, is that you enjoy what you're doing, and you feel that you're rewarded you know, sometimes you get a kick in the balls, that's just farming. But at the end of the day, as long as you can see that the direction of travel that you're taking uh, is going to be good and that you think that what you're doing is worthwhile, then that's the main thing. Because at the end of the day, you know, I've had jobs where you've been superstar wages, but, uh, you know, it's fine uh, having the comfort of, of a, a, a good financial position, but equally... You need that spark to kind of get out of bed in the morning and, mm. you know, have something that drives you and have something that, you know, you feel passionate about and you want to get out of bed for in the morning sort of thing. I think if you find yourself in a position of doing a job where you have to drag yourself out of bed, that's time to start looking for something else because it obviously doesn't tick the boxes for you quite like what, you know, it maybe used to or whatever. Yeah, I always say that about people who win the lottery. Once, if, you, if you won the lottery on the Monday... Why are you getting out of bed? <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, a good story I've got about uh, a guy from Perthshire that won the lottery, and uh, this guy who was a hill farmer, and he he didn't really have a massive outfit, uh, and he won the lottery. But I mean, when I say a win, it wasn't a massive win. It was like a quarter of a million or something like that. And the local newspaper went up to interview him and said, "Right, Mister." Smith, what are you going to do with the, the winnings that you've got for this lottery? And, of course, a normal person would say, oh, I'm going to buy a car, I'll buy a house, I'm going on holiday, whatever. This boy said, oh, I've, I've absolutely no, I've got no problems with what I'm doing with this money. I know exactly what I'm doing. And they're like, well, what are you doing with it then? Oh, I'm just going to keep farming until it's all gone. Yeah. Yeah, and it probably <laughs> didn't take too long either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it is right, though, isn't it, that I think the one thing you can't buy is time. And the most important thing about time is spending time doing something you want to do, isn't it? So if you enjoy farming, even on the shit days, it's still time spent 
working towards better days. Do you, do you see where I'm coming from in that regard? You can never buy time, can you? So what's the point in working in a job nine till five, five days a week? If you hate it, I'd rather work seven days a week where it doesn't feel like a job. Yeah. Yes. And the other thing too is, I guess it depends on your circumstance, but like even in a job where you're working for, for an employer rather than, you know, running your own farm or whatever, at the end of the day, you're kind of the master of your own destiny. So, like, if you have ideas or you have ways of making things better, that that's kind of the thing that really drives me. It's the ability to come up with new ideas and be innovative and try and move a job forward. Because there's so many people, I think, who they're, 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 they do a thing and it's like the same thing they've done every year. The, the same way, you know, there's there, you just see very little progression. And like to me, I'm always looking for a new way to do something, a better way to innovate and move forward because I just find it interesting and exciting. You know, you try some things and they maybe don't work, but then sometimes you get a piece of knowledge that kind of uh, describes or, or or highlights why it didn't work. And then you say, right, we'll try that again. And lo and behold, maybe when you try it again the second time, you actually find that it's a success. You know, it's, it, that, it's that part of it that sort of, really interests me it's it's just when you can step back and see you know something that you've done that that has, has worked really well um it's quite a satisfying thing uh, to you know work towards that you know it will. it's it's, const, it's constant building blocks as such isn't it because you're constantly improving because you'll never ever be perfect in this game the times always change ideas always change and systems always slightly change with new knowledge etc so you're always constantly looking to improve and like you say some years you have a bad harvest but then that doesn't mean you're going to go and change the system completely does it but you'll also find other things to try and prevent having the same detrimental impact because you've had a bad harvest for example you look at little things that you could make to try and uh, alleviate those issues happening isn't it so that that is the joy really with farming that you're allowed the sort of flexibility and you've got to work on your own initiative when you're farming haven't you because nothing is structured and no single day is exactly the same like we spoke now, um, we've altered this date a couple of times, haven't we, boys? <laughs> because the weather keeps changing. But as frustrating as that is, it's one of the only industries that's so affected by stuff out of our control as well, which is frustrating. But at the same time, it's also something quite not enjoyable is the wrong word because it's frustrating. But there's something very unique about it, isn't it? Well, <clears throat> well I would say, Jacob. You know, I've I've seen two sides of the fence, okay? So, like, in, in nuclear engineering, there's no, like, second chance. It has to be right. It has to be spot on. It has to be to a microscopic tolerance. You know, there's no given it. It's got to be bang on. But equally in farming, I think trying to strive for perfection is very often a sort of negative thing to try and do because very often perfect is the enemy of the very good, you know, the world's not meant to be concise. And sometimes something that's very good actually will turn out to be more uh, sort of um, beneficial to you than what, you know, striving for perfection sort of thing. You know, I think you're, you're trying to do so much. You know, if you're if you're sitting uh, trying to make something and you're saying, right, this part, I'm going to make this, it's absolutely bang on. Uh, that's fine. You can do that because you're concentrating on one aspect of it. But when you're farming, you're generally doing a whole lot of things at once. So you mm. have to be very good at everything. So if you concentrate too much on one thing, 
you're going to let something else fall down. So the, the thing is to be trying to be very good at everything rather than being a perfectionist at one or two things. If you can just sort of try and, you know, uh, allow a little bit of, as you say, you know, the weather might scupper your plans or whatever. It's just you've got to think on your feet and have the ability to kind of bounce back and and um, sort of have a bit of initiative and a bit of kind of resourcefulness to make things happen. You will. I've said it. I tell you what, that, that's spot on. You just could almost do a clip clip in that quote by there, what you just said there, Rano, because that's literally, Yeah. I think oh, a lot of farmers need to hear that from you, what you just said by there, really. I don't know what you think, Di, but... Well, I was just yeah, going to say, first thing I'd say, Rano, I bet you don't scroll through Instagram reels when you go to bed, do you? I bet you're just too fucking switched on and you're fucking too... You're brilliant. Anyway, um, I... I Actually, I, I do... I do look at social media and things and uh, like there was one I don't know did you see it recently but there's quite a viral thing just now with this clip of a news uh, in a segment in Australia with a little boy did you see that by any chance? No you sound I'm like uh, so cute did you see right, that well, thing that went viral? <laughs> yeah. uh, well <laughs> well I'll tell you actually like I was listening to one of my other scholars, uh, fellow year scholars, doing a podcast, uh, Alassiana Bowen, and I was I, I I've done uh, the same podcast, uh, and listening to her, her voice is like you know sort of sounds lovely to listen to. My voice sounds like listening to a bloody cement mixer full of ball bearings uh, oh, when you play it back type of thing. I disagree. <laughs> but anyway, so there's this viral thing, this joke. They, that has been on Instagram, and I think it's it's a cracker because today they were on the news about the Edinburgh Festival and the joke that is supposed supposedly the best joke of the fringe, and it's absolutely terrible. It's like uh, this woman, and she says, "Oh yeah, um, I used to go out with a, a zookeeper, but luckily I don't go out with him anymore because it turns out he's a cheetah, and that is apparently the best joke of the Edinburgh Fringe, and it's terrible, right?" Now, this viral thing that's on Instagram right now, this little boy who's always been told to go on the the news channel to to, um, tell his joke, it's an absolute cracker. So the two news presenters are... I have seen it. I have seen it. Yes, yes. A vegan and a vegetarian are jumping off a cliff to see who hit the bottom first. Who wins? I don't know. Who wins? Society. (laughs) 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 I'll send it to you now, Jake. Yeah, you gotta clip that in, die. Well, okay, now. Uh, I sent. I thought I sent it to you, Jake. Sorry. That was class. Fuck it up. I take it all back now. You saying have you seen that clip that went viral? Um, but back to what we were saying. <laughs> yeah, that was that was. Yeah, well, anyway, anyway, David, much to your disappointment, uh, I do look at a lot of sort of rather more highbrow stuff. But no, I, you have to make time for silly shit as well, which is partly why I listen to this podcast. To be truth be told, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no sense in this podcast. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, here the thing is. You can laugh. You can laugh about it, boys, but it's a deadly serious point. I mean, there's so much pressure now in modern farming. You know, the financial element of it to, to deliver. I mean, the challenges that go with working in adverse weather and 
you know, there's so much at stake and we're trying to better ourselves as farmers. So we're obviously trying to listen to what's going on and try and second guess where the job might be uh, going forward and whatnot. But at the same time, there has to be an element of just nonsense because yeah. you need something that just kind of, you know, you can sort of zone off and, you know, listen to something that kind of gets your head out of the game for a little bit. Oh yeah, nah, that's spot. If you're sat in a, if you're sat in a tractor for 15, 16 hours a day, working all you know, just several weeks on end, sometimes you just want to, you just want to laugh at silly things. And you're like one of my favourite podcasts. I love the rugby pod. I love rugby, but some of the, even the rugby podcasts can be too serious. But the rugby pod, they just take the piss out of each other. And I think you just need that sort of element of. Just being down a pub and like you say, just complete nonsense. It doesn't even need to make sense, does it? You just need to be able to laugh, don't you? Yeah, you definitely will. Well, when we all, when all us boys, the six six farmer sons, when we we always go out for a meal or go to the pub or whatever, I know, you know, my family will say things like, "Oh, have they? Have they? Have they? Or, or, or so so?" I, I I always say. Do you really think when we go out, we talk about farming? We couldn't give a flying fuck about farming when we go. Out. We do it all day. Do you really think when six of us get together, we sit around and talk about it, talk about it all night as well? We chat about times we've been drunk, stupid fucking hell, that's Times we've been drunk, stupid shit we've done, and what we're going to do in the future. <laughs> do you see that then, Jay? Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, die, die, that's die. That's quite sad. That is. <laughs> Uh, I've lost my finger on it. I keep, I keep right, one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if you noticed, Ronald, but Dai's, uh, Dai's a little bit less than he was the last time we podcasted. Yeah, so I heard I, yeah. Oh, well, that's not good. Yeah. What happened? Were you eating your dinner too aggressively or what happened? Yeah, I, 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 a bit too aggressive with the missions he was. <laughs> yeah, that's why they call her a growler. No, um, uh, <laughs> basically, I started biting my nail, and I just didn't know when to stop. And now I'm down to the oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't worry, we'll cover that on another day. <laughs> yeah, but um, what, to what you were saying earlier, we've said in this podcast before: farming is twenty percent planning and eighty percent problem solving. I think the key. The key um, skill you need as a farmer is problem solving because you name anything you do all day, even if you go and spray a field, you're problem solving. There's a weed that you need to kill. You know, if you go and other than probably harvesting, you are problem solving. Yeah, well, even in harvesting, boys, I've seen me like the rain is coming sort of thing. And yeah. last year we had a bearing that decided to fail. And the bearing, I mean, in this part of the world, uh, next day parts is not a given and uh, same day parts is totally out of the question uh, and I've seen myself manufacturing something it was actually at the end of the day I got a bearing which was a, a wheel uh, hub bearing for a Peugeot car was roughly what fitted so I managed to adapt that to fit the car of the combine through uh, enough that it could sort of tide it over to get to the 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 uh, replacement part coming home so absolutely and this is why a lot of people from a farming background are quite sought after for jobs like engineering is because they've got a bit of work ethic they've got uh, you know a bit of kind of common sense and problem solving and you know guys that have, or girls equally that have got skill you know 
they're just not found in the modern era. I mean, we can talk about it later sort of thing, but like it, it's very much a thing. There's a lot of problems in the modern world. And I think one of the problems we have is that people kind of lead too good of a life in the sense that they've got a standard of living which is too high and mm. it's largely afforded to them by cheap credit because they've got stuff that they, they really probably shouldn't have. So instead of having like a Ford Mondeo, they've got a BMW X5. Instead of staying in like a, you know, a two or three bedroom house, they're living in a four bedroom house. And it's all things that have been bought, you know, cars on PCP at 700 quid a month. We've got a mortgage on the house. We pay for iPhone. We pay for Netflix, all these things. And I think uh, the dynamics of where we're going in the future, you're going to see this start to go away because, I mean, the bottom line is inflation is going to keep rising and therefore the interest rates will keep rising. And some point next year, you are going to see uh, things are going to be a bit of a shit show because a lot of people who are sort of just bobbing above the waterline just now uh, are going to be going under with a tsunami of stuff that they can't really afford. So, and, and that that that's why we don't have a, a kind of work ethic. You know, so if you try getting people for farming, oh, you'll hardly get them sort of thing because, you know, they're hard work in the modern era. You know, if you go back to your father and grandfather's day, hard work was like digging a ditch with a spade in the pissing rain for 12 hours a day, every day of the week type of thing. Whereas like now, Modern living, hard hard work is spending four days at home on Zoom for thirty grand a year, you know. So there's definitely going to be a change coming, uh, and and the, the change will affect farming as well because what happens in society will ultimately affect where we go in the future. But I think that the reckoning is is coming because you know you can start to see the the pain now that has been caused through kind of cost of living. But I think that is going to continue and maybe even uh, possibly go back to a more similar kind of trend of where we were maybe like in the 70s and 80s. I mean, in that time, uh, inflation at like 15% a year or whatever was quite common. You know, it was we basically had a period of very low inflation uh, caused by globalisation. And now that uh, we've got China kind of falling off the cliff in the back of COVID and we've got Russia at war with uh, the Ukraine now and sort of sanctioned because of it. Uh, Globalisation is going to kind of come to an end, I think. I'm I'm really, really sorry there, Ranald, because it was an incredibly serious point, but you did mention COVID. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? You've got a down the drink? Uh, yeah, go on. Yeah. <laughs> We'll have a drink with you, but you can see yours off. Oh, bloody hell. Uh, I saw Jake with his hand up, and I thought he had a serious point about globalization and capitalism, but he was like, you saw <laughs> you said COVID, see it on. Anyway, um, yeah, well, that is exactly the reason you mentioned your... You mentioned a lot there, but that's exactly the reason why the biggest issue facing agriculture right now is labor shortages, because why would you go and... You know, scrape slurry out of a scrape scrape slurry off her cubicles and push it into a pit. When, like you say, you could get thirty grand a year just sitting on Zoom. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. It's scary. We got um a welder comes here. He comes here for a couple of hours on a Tuesday evening and then a Saturday morning, and he's well, he's early sixties now, 
And like he's come back and forth to the farm, you know, Tuesday night when he finishes work, he comes up here for a couple of hours. Saturday morning when he's not working, he comes up for a couple of hours. You know, we always make sure we find him work to have them in it. I literally don't know a boy within yeah. 10 years. I mean, it's 20 to 40, that age bracket, 10 years either side of me, that would come and do that because I don't know any welders. There's hardly any welders our sort of age group or fabricators. And if they are, they don't want any extra work. They're happy that Monday to Friday, working the hours that they've got to work. And it's, it's really scary moving forward because it's just not our generation of help for farmers as well, external help, is it? The, you know, the old classic, the fit they'll come and do a bit of work for you in the evenings, you know, when they finish working for the local agricultural um, uh, dealership, they'll come and do a couple of hours for you, uh, a few evenings a week, uh, you know, an evening a week, except they're not about anymore. And not only are they not about, almost like the way society has gone, people don't want that extra work outside of their normal job, do they? And it's, it's, no, it's quite no. scary. <clears throat> The reason for that, boys, is quite simple. Um, I mean, the bottom line is the reason they're not doing it, they're not doing these sort of, dare I say, cash numbers, uh, is because the fact of the matter is they don't need to. If you want whatever whatever you want, you can go out and get it basically on the back of having somebody who will borrow you the money. But as I say, um, come time, um, you know, that dynamic is going to change. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody should be kind of uh, pushed kind of to the, the poverty line because that, that, that's not really what it's about. But I think there's been a period of time where people have been very well off. You know, the fact that you can jump on a plane and fly to like, you know, halfway around the world, you know, you can go get these flights to Ibiza or whatever, and it's like 40 quid. Well, we have to question going forward the moral thing about, you know, carbon footprint, all these things come into the equation. Is that, is that right that you can do that type of thing? You know, it's 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 economically possible, obviously, but is it kind of right to do these type of things? That's the type of thing that will come forward. You know, and, and in farming uh, as well, I think ethics will pay quite a big thing. I mean, you can see in the in the like of the um, dairy industry, the implication of that. I mean, a calf, for example, bull calves, just shot them in the past sort of thing. I mean, that's now morally unacceptable and I guess that's that's probably right so then yeah. that starts to move on then and have impacts on other things and the next thing probably will be taking the cow away from the calf it's probably likely that in time the the calf will stay on the cow and in terms of like carbon footprint and things you know you've got milk and beef all there on the one unit and that potentially has an impact then on beef farmers so I don't know pardon me this is just scenarios that I'm thinking out aloud, but you know these these sort of um, societal demands, if you like, will have an impact on where we go in the future uh, regards to what we're doing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's, yeah. That's right. And like say there, that societal demands are going to have an impact across the board. We're not dairy at home, but that bull beef job with the dairy is going to affect us because we produce suckler bull beef. Well, as soon as mm -hmm. it becomes the bull beef coming into the market, then we're going to start to notice a decrease in the price we're offered for our our produce of finishing bull beef on the farm. We're going to have to reassess that system. So it just affects farmer, you know, it affects everyone across the board, doesn't it? When systems change, preferences change. You mentioned there about going to somewhere like Ibiza for 40 quid on a plane. Well, it's, it doesn't make sense that we can go and give money to a Spanish business 
and get charged by, you know, a lot cheaper and a lot better for us to go and give money to a Spanish business instead of going for a weekend in Blackpool or somewhere like that, for example. We're really to try and keep the British economy going. We'd be better off having cheap weekends in the UK, wouldn't we? Uh, you know, boozy weekends in places like Blackpool, Skegness, you know, Western Supermare, these sort of places. But we all go to Benidorm, we all go to Ibiza because it's far cheaper, isn't it? How does that make sense so we can fly a couple of hours on a plane crazy. for half the price? It just doesn't, does it? It's crazy. No. No, definitely. And then, obviously, um, you know, going forward, as I say, there, there's lots of things that we have to consider uh, that are going to impact on, on where we're going. And right now, I think there is an element of, of uncertainty in farming. And I've seen a thing just today about uh, a survey that the NFU in England had, had published. And they are saying that their survey... Uh, which interviewed or surveyed 600 members uh, of which they, they were all involved in the dairy industry, they reckon that uh, at least 10% of the members that were surveyed intend not to be farming in the dairy industry by 2025. So, you know, you're talking about in 18 months, you're going to lose potentially, uh, you know, a, a tenth of the dairy industry type of thing. So there, there's great uncertainty at the moment as to where we're going but equally i think uh looking forward there's also some great opportunities as well and sometimes you need an element of change to come into the thing to create these opportunities that we can then move forward on yeah i think, uh, I think, well, change, okay. I think change often but enforced change can sometimes be a good thing as well and you know I, there's there's bad elements there's good elements there's whatever, you know, it could be the worst thing ever. But when you do have a force change for something like Brexit, whether people like it or not, force change that could come from that could shake up some businesses and it makes us think a little bit outside the box. And the point is now that whether it's good or bad, it's not going to change now, is it? So we almost got to look at these changes in a light. What can we do rather than how can we stop it? And yeah, I, I think like you say there, Ronald, that we've got to have changes come in. And I think there is opportunities there. And for like like yourself, for example, you've been we'll, we'll get on to that now in a minute about Nuffield and stuff, but you've been you would have traveled quite a lot when you were on a scholarship. So you see other parts of the world and you see what opportunities could potentially be there coming forward for us as British farmers. But change is also very scary, isn't it? Change is scary because a lot of us do like the safety blanket of what we've been doing for years and years, and we and even if that what we've been doing for years and years isn't necessarily making money. We're still surviving, aren't we? Mm. A lot of people are still surviving, and they? they've been surviving on a shoestring, which is, you know, it's no way, it's not a good mindset to have. But they survived, haven't they? This long, they think they can keep going, don't they? Which I, I don't know. It's, it's a scary, it's a scary element. There's going to be a huge wake up calls for a few people in the next couple of years, isn't it? Which is. I don't know. I'm gonna have a drink because it's scaring me a bit. Talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, Jacob. If there's one constant in farming, it is the constant of change. That's the one thing that stays pretty steadfast uh, as we move through the ages of farming. Um, and Charles Darwin said that uh, during the theory of evolution, it's not the strongest nor the smartest of species that survive. It's the ones that are most adaptable to change 
And as the world changes, which it no doubt will, we as farmers must also change as well. I mean, take, for example, most people in farming, the safety net that they have around subsidy. Now, you're seeing in England that that subsidy is starting to go. And in the devolved nations, uh, obviously in Wales and things, you're starting to see things that are coming uh, in their line of work where they are uh, starting to see that the, the, the route ahead is probably going to be quite similar to England in the sense that we'll nearly probably, or certainly in Scotland, it looks like we're going to have a copy and paste style of thing where we end up that uh, we're going to get much more decreased subsidies, maybe even possibly get into the point where we might even have no subsidy at all or, or no meaningful amount of subsidy. So that's obviously a scary thing. And how do we adapt to that? And, you know, everybody's sort of calling on the government to do something about it. But the problem is the pot of money that they're using for that, uh, when the NHS is in dire straits and the, you know, school performance is very poor and they don't have money even last year to put the heating on because the energy costs were crippling them, that becomes a challenge to try and justify this money for farming. So, yeah. you know, I guess it's all about what we can do. And, you know, there's alternatives we could do. For example, in the 1920s, uh, the government had a problem where they had a lot of land and not a lot of farmers because at that time you couldn't give land away. So to get people into farming, they created a government-backed uh, loan scheme to give people money to buy farms. So the government basically said, right, here's a government-backed loan uh, over your property at a kind of sensible interest rate that you can afford. And it got farmers into farming. Now, imagine instead of getting a subsidy, you got the opportunity to get finance to move your business forward. Because as we're going forward in the future, finance, is, as I've said, is going to be a problem because interest rates are going to move up. And if we look at interest rates just now, for example, right, why is it that we've had, you know, if, if, if say, for example, you're speaking to somebody who's in their 50s and 60s, they'll turn around and tell you, oh, interest rates are 8%. That's nothing. You know, in my day, you know, back in the 80s or whatever, we had interest rates at 15%. Well, yes, you're right. But at the same time, somebody having a mortgage on a house, they would only be borrowing three times their salary. Yeah. Now, today, if you're going to borrow money for a house, you're going to need like 10 times your salary to, to buy this house. And the reason is because in the 90s, because interest rates were high, instead of going out and like buying property, you put your money into the bank because it would make a nice little earner on interest. But when that went away, when interest rates dropped, they needed something as a hedge to stop your money becoming worth nothing. So you went out and bought, if you had money, you bought property. And this is what we're seeing in farming as well. You know, it's not just houses that it's affected. This is why your land is like a uh, 10,000, 15,000 pound an acre. It's not because you can grow four tonne of wheat at 200 pound a tonne. That's not the bit of it that people are interested in. It's a fact that it's a good investment uh, that is a hedge against inflation, and it also has some tax incentives as well that, that some people can access to pass their money on. It prevents us as farmers from getting in because the land price is so high. But you know, if something if if there's an alternative way of doing things, equally that's something that could be pursued. And it, it's been done in the past, and it doesn't actually cost the government anything. If anything, they make money on it because it's a return. And as well as that, a lot of people who are receiving the subsidies just now, they're not actually doing anything with that money. 
No. If you look around the countryside, there's a lot of farms that are there and they're just there and no more because the subsidies holding them together. They're not actively, progressively pushing their businesses forward. Now, a change like that could potentially you know, push a new uh, kind of era of progression in farming because people who were ambitious and who would take a bit of a, a gamble and work hard towards their future might have the possibility to have something of their own. But as it sits just now, that's not going to happen because at the end of the day, the system is kind of geared against you. So, you know, I don't know. That's one thing, perhaps, if we change what we're doing. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that uh, the money could be quite easily made available because the amount of money that's being spent on subsidies just now is colossal. And that's half the problem as to why we're not going to get the same amount of subsidy going forward, you know? Yeah, well, I, I always say that the biggest problem with subsidy as it stands now is it's very easy to get paid for doing nothing. So you imagine just easy numbers now. A farmer's receiving £10,000 in subsidy. I'd far rather see that £10,000 given to that farm because they are spending £30,000 on a new kit. So I think it should just be a grant system. So in Wales, I don't know where it's like in Scotland, but we recently had the Farm Business Grant, um, which was if you were buying a um, kit that would... And it could alternate every year. So one year it could be uh, nutrient management. So it could be all about, you know, changing your splash plates to dribble bars and change, you know, putting roofs over your slurry pits and doing things like this. And then the following year it could be all about water quality. So it's like, right, if you're happy to put, I, I don't know, dikes or uh, ponds or anything. And then the following year it could be, I don't know, efficiency. So then you're all about right, like um, handling systems, weighing scales. I'd rather you got that money because you're doing something rather than, like you say, you're just sitting on the land, making it unavailable for young farmers trying to get it and living on it and probably going to Ibiza. But anyway, we try to be the podcast that doesn't depress everyone. <laughs> so <laughs> I got I got two questions. Firstly, am I right in thinking you were in YFC? Uh, yes, I was in the Scottish Association of Young Farmers. Yeah, I'm a long time served Young Farmers member. Secondly, my question, second question would be, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm picturing a very rural area up with you, very sparse, popula sparse population. Like, I've I've grown up in an area where we're in the M4 corridor, is a, is, is a real dense area population. How do clubs how do clubs generate enough members to be viable in such a... Or is it just that because it's a sparse population, but everyone is connected to agriculture? Well, um, Heathness is not a vast area, but uh, the amount of people you're drawing from in the rural areas will, will tend to get smaller. But I guess there's equally people who live in a rural area that have an interest in farming. And certainly uh, there's not really a problem at the moment. That the clubs that are here, there's three clubs, Bower, Force and Hulkert are the three main clubs up this neighbourhood woods. And I'm a staunch Bower member. and um, you know, in Caithness, it's still quite strong, even if they're not directly involved with farming. They maybe have an indirect farming involvement or connection that pulls them into young farmers. And uh, certainly it's good to see that it is strong because young farmers, the Scottish Association of Young Farmers, has its roots based in the county of Caithness. It was started 100 years ago as a pig fattening competition in the farm in the centre of the county 
And now, um, 100 years on, it's still going strong. So it's good to see that continuation. And I have no doubt in the future that it'll be as vibrant, as popular as as ever, because uh, the model of young farmers is spot on. You know, it's like, uh, as you were talking about earlier, the ability to kind of gain skills and meet people and learn about things, but equally still have that bit of nonsense at the side as well that's going to give you lifetime memories that you'll you'll cherish forever more. So I think on that aspect of it, no, I mean, there are some people who are day-to-day bread and butter farmers, but equally there are people who help out weekends or people that uh, maybe has an uncle that has a farm or whatever, and they're maybe not farmers as such, but they have that interest in there and they're very often dragged in. Certainly in my day, it was a thing that, you didn't, you, you know, you didn't have an option if you were going to young farmers. You were told you were going to young farmers, and you were bundled in a car, and you were taken away to a stock judging practice, or you were taken away to play games of hockey and football and things. And that kind of hasn't changed. And as you go through it, eventually, you, uh, you, what, what the gift that was given to you, you then pass on to whoever follows behind you. You got, you got to support it, but. Yeah, that's uh, often the people, like you say, that have uncles or aunties that are farming or just loosely connected to farming. Sometimes they can be the the best to kind of be the backbone of those young farmers clubs because a lot of the times during the, the, the busier period, say the lambing, like down in this part of the world, they should almost, from February to April, they should almost, can't, if it was up to farmers, they'd cancel young farmers for two-month period because none of the farming members go, but often these people yeah. are the ones that are the backbone that keep it going. So... I remember I was always, I was put in my place one year because I had that attitude of I'm a farmer. Young farmers doesn't understand farmers anymore. And I had, I was proper put back in my box. I went to a county meeting. I said, why the bloody hell are they putting this event on during this day? You know, it doesn't make sense. It's not fair on farmers. You know, we're all, we could be busy that month or whatever, et cetera. And what they said to me was, well, if you don't like it, why don't you farmers come to the meetings then? Come to the county meetings and vote on it. And I was like, Oh shit, I suppose they, are, they have got a point there. We're not the ones that are there organizing it or the ones there making the decisions. So sometimes you need these people, don't you? A lot of the time you need these people. They're the backbone of young farmers in a lot of ways. Obviously, it's always got to stay agricultural, it's always got to stay rural. But there's periods of the year that we can't make it. Dai's been chairman, I've been chairman of the young farmers. There's certain periods of time that you need someone that can step into our shoes when us and other members are busy, isn't it, Di? And we've been very grateful for them. They are loosely connected with agriculture. Yeah, certainly. And what I find, too, is the success of a club. I mean, by and large, every dog has its day. So, like, you'll get periods where your club is not as strong because maybe the attachment of people that you have to, to pull from is not as you know, there's there's just a sort of progression. There's no as many as young people, uh, but then equally you can go maybe five years down the line and you've got a new kind of flush of people coming in. I think it's just a continuation thing. It's You've got to have the right amount of people at the right ages. You know, it's no use having too many people too old or too many people too young. You've just got to have a good spread of people. And as you say, a bit of diversity in the thing doesn't hurt either because you've got so many different talents that you can pull on to get the best out of your club. So, yeah, absolutely. What you're saying is dead on, Jacob. I mean, that's a success, the whole thing. If you've got this continuation and you've got a kind of system that more or less runs itself, uh, it makes it so much easier uh, than um, the success of the club is, is is infinitely better when you've got that, you know, to draw from. And if you don't have that to draw from, it becomes a bit more challenging because there start to be some gaps appear 
rain and, and, and the tapestry a little bit. So am I right in thinking then that you would have been on the nuclear subs during your young farmers? Am I getting the timeline right? That you Yeah, were... so um, I, I, I did my agri- a mechanical apprenticeship. I left school at 16, which was in 2005. And I was a young farmers member since 13 or 14. So yeah, I was, I was involved in that. And I, I did that up until about 2011. In fact, when I did... I would have been doing that role when uh, I won the National Member of the Year competition in 2009. And I think I was at 19 at that time. And I think I was the youngest, two possibly youngest ever, even today, to win that competition at that time at 19. Uh, But yeah, I I had that. And it was good because, you know, sometimes it didn't work because a lot of what I did was shift work. But at the same time, if you had things you wanted to go to, you just had to, you know, kind of make sure you had leave booked to go to it or arrange, you know, whereas farming was quite similar. You might have a job, you're making silage or something, you can't go. Uh, but yeah, um, I just tried to make it work as best as I could. And equally, there was things that, you know, I would maybe have time, you would maybe find a quiet spot in your working day that you could sit down and actually do stuff. You know, whereas people from other roles, if they're in an office-based environment, perhaps, they can maybe type up minutes on their lunch break and things like that. But I find that when you're farming, you're trying to do everything. It's a job to get the time then to do these things that should be done properly type of thing. You know, like uh, doing uh, accounts and things like that. These are important things that you'll do in young farmers if you're involved in a position and paying, you know, stuff into the bank. Well, you've got to be in the town to go to the bank to pay the cheque in. Whereas yeah. if you work in the town, it's no bother because you just nip down to the bank in your lunch break. So again, just a mixture of people makes the job easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just I, I know little things like printing stuff out. I remember, you know, if somebody's got an office job, printing something out isn't a big job. But it, it sounds no. like an excuse. But when you're farming, you actually have to go in get it you know yeah but yeah it sounds like an excuse. Yeah, and you probably use a printer that's like similar to my computer that you had to blow some dust off it yeah and then you find the ink cartridges don't work and then you find yeah, you don't have any yeah, yeah. whereas in an office you've got this laser printer that's like a bloody machine gun that fires yeah. them out it's no bother you know so yeah ronald i'm gonna have to go and sit down and think about all this now okay i don't know if i could t- i'm gonna have to have a- i'm gonna have to comprehend all this for a bit We'll be doing you can't yet. You can't yet die because the cows are out. And that's what I was trying to get onto. Good segue, Jacob. That, of course, means this is Can't Talk Cows Out. Five quick fire questions where the oracle that is Ronald Angus asks, answers the questions on everybody's lips. I just feel quite pleased to really die that we've actually been saying his name right all night because. I've been struggling with Scottish names recently, so I'm glad we nailed yours first time. Well, I can tell you, boys, uh, in my time in agriculture, especially in a farming business, which is also a family business, I've been called a hell of a lot worse, I'll tell you that. I'm sure you boys have done too. <laughs> uh, I don't think called Jacob, put it that way. <laughs> to, to me, you'll always be Cristiano, Ronaldo. Anyway, question number one. Yeah. What is the most used word or sentence on the farm? Most used word or sentence on the farm. Ronald, stop building a reactor in the workshop. No, it's, um, 
Ronald, you Chernobyl have been doing that. Well, that makes no sense, but yeah. <laughs> Ronald, why is the wheat sample glowing lime green? <laughs> <laughs> um, it probably would be like, I suppose, my, my brother and my grandfather and uh, my dad, they all kind of have this, I know in the modern thing, it's like you don't have a blame culture. But like something will break and uh, you can probably tell that they've broken it. But they'll turn around and be like, who did this? Yeah. Who put that there like that? You know, we've all seen that as like a portion of the blame to somebody else. Type of thing. You know? is breaking something, parking on the yard, walking across the yard and going, oh, the bloody, what happened there? Who did that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, we we know we know that games. That's not our first rodeo, as far as that's concerned. Yeah. <laughs> Question number two, Jacob. What is your all-time favourite Cabland classic? Now you said you're close to the Arctic Circle, so you're pretty much this time of year is twenty-four hours of daylight up <laughs> with you on uh, the North Scottish coast. So you spend a lot of time in a tractor. So I'm expecting a banger now because yeah, so. Um, I think it would have to be I think it's Gala and Freed From My Desire I think that's what Freed he's called From Desire yeah. so, so, so Bower Young Farmers which uh, I am a great patron of they won the National Club of the Year in 2016 in, in, at the Highland Show and we were the first club in Caithness to do it and that was our anthem because when when we were got the trophy and we were cutting about the bars on the show with this trophy we were all shouting I think there's a, a football version of it for a guy Will Griggs Will, Will yeah, Griggs yeah that's fire. right so we were all shouting Bowers on fire da 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 Bowers on fire so whenever that <laughs> comes on I just go you know you just think yes <laughs> Yeah. Funnily that's, enough, that's actually, a great chance. Funnily enough, Bauer actually won the Club of the Year again for a second time this year, and it was even more poignant because that's a hundred years since uh, obviously Young Farmers was founded uh, in Caithness. So it was even more poignant to think that one of the original clubs was still one of the very best. So I was quite delighted with that. Oh. Oh, you warmed the cockles in my heart. Die, die, we'll have a little drink to cake, Ness, won't we? Question number three. Four legs or four wheels? This is interesting, Jake. This is interesting. It is just submarine <laughs> <Most> wheels. <laughs> Most definitely four wheels. Four wheels. Yeah. Oh, of course, he's a car man as well. Yeah. Now this quest question four though. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you boys actually, right? You can you can add this in or cut it out if you like. But a very wise old farmer told me, he said, 
It doesn't matter, boy. If it's got tits or it's got tires, it'll give you grief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah that's that's spot on, that is. Oh, I see Di. Di is Jessica in the background there giving you evils whilst doing curling something. Whilst bench pressing, she's there giving you evils and shit. Oh, I'm just thinking all my life decisions. Anyway, question four, Jake. Well, I think question four, I don't know what way this is going to go. Pitt or Bales? I feel like, hang on, let me just say, I feel like because... I feel like I know which way this could go, actually, because I'm not going to say why, but yeah, go on. Go on, Ronald, tell us. Pit or Bills? Pit. Yeah, I thought it was going to be Pit. You absolutely achieve a far better quality of silage as far as I can see. Generally, uh, it depends, obviously, how quickly you can get the pit filled, but if you can fill a pit in a quick time frame, generally you'll get good stuff, whereas Bales... Uh, it depends, you know, you're, you, you you cut a bale and you use a bale, but very often you can find that you can get more bad ones, whereas in a silage pit, it tends to be more consistent. Hey, Ronald, they're not bad. They're just called dust-free, all right, mate? But um, <laughs> moving on to question five. Question number five, big YFC man yourself. What is your YFC slogan? Back on your polo, back of your hoodies, what are you putting on? Actually, right, yes, I know what you this. mean. We didn't ask this, actually, Ronald. Have you got an equivalent to AGM in Scotland? Like, quite you probably have, but you, no, you no, you do like conferences and things, and they have like you know a sort of get together at Highland Show, but we don't have an AGM in Scotland quite like they would have in England, or maybe you guys have it in Wales. Um, but I know the thing you're meaning. You read the back of the Farmers Weekly, and you see these slogans uh, on the back of the T-shirts. Yeah. Um, I guess. A phrase that comes to mind, which may or may not be appropriate, but it would be if you're uh, in the livestock game, is that if you don't have any milk, you're not getting any beef. <laughs> yeah. I, that's quite that's nice thing, that is. Randy O'Ranald, eh? Randy O'Ranald. <laughs> so it just leaves for me to say a massive thank you to you, Jacob Anthony. Thanks, Di. And but, uh, yeah, most of all, you need to thank the main man. The very, I found very inspirational and very educational, Ronald Angus. Thank you very much, Ronald. You know what I think of him as, Di? I think of him as the quote king. The, the quote, quote king. king, yeah. The, quote the king. mythbuster. Well, thank you, boys. Um, it's been a pleasure, but I can assure you, I can equally be uh, very uh, stupid and senseless. Uh, at the same time, there's many a day, young farmers, where we've done some things that were not too clever, but uh, you'll always remember them in the future. You'll never remember who won the speech making, senior speech making competition or 90 note cake, but you'll always remember somebody who was uh, like hanging upside down out of a bus window on a, on a trip down to a conference or something. So just continue to be stupid because you need that as well. Oh, don't worry, Ryan. We, we saw you at the conference. We know you're stupid. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> Goodbye, boys. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>